your hair has been looking good on Instagram. Thanks. It, it looks, looks like good shit now. right now. But no, no, I, I was going to say. It's been in a bun all day. What have you been using? So, okay. Because I'm kind of jealous because I haven't seen these curls. I'm like, those not, are nice and locked and. Not at all related to this podcast, but you're going to all hear about my hair routine right now. Because because quarantine has left me with nothing to do in my life. I have started the curly girl method, which I learned about. I learned about a while ago, but it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And. I needed to be at home like for several weeks, which is convenient because we were at home for three months. Mm-hmm. Um, but it basically is, it's a routine that's like half in the products you use and just half in how you apply them and how you clean your hair. Okay. So you don't use anything with parabens, sulfates, alcohols, anything that's like harsh and stripping to your hair. Like mm-hmm. this week I just started like not actually washing my hair with shampoo. I've been using a co-wash, okay. which is like a conditioner wash. I don't know how I feel about it yet. My hair's my hair gets weird. weird if I don't use shampoo. It's a, it's like a, it's like a cleansing shampoo. Uh, okay. and I have like a, a scrubby silicone brush that I like scrub my scalp with. So it gets all the oils off. That sounds like that feels, I, it feels very nice. I imagine that feels it's very like good. When you go to the hair salon yeah, and they massage I, your head, you always get the girl with the long nails, like yes. the ones that like have the artificial. Cause it's like, <sighs> it's like that. Um, so you, you don't use any like harmful products to your hair. Uh, a lot of it involves putting like, I'm not going to go into too much detail because no one else really cares. A lot of it involves putting like products in your wet hair and you put it in what's called a plop, which I hate the name, but you basically <laughs> wrap it up in either a microfiber towel or a t-shirt mm-hmm. for like 20 minutes and then you like let it down and you just squish it and it looked real rough for the first like four weeks it takes a while for your hair to transition my yeah. hair is wavy anyway right but i've never like put effort into doing anything other than i get out of the shower i rub my head with a towel and then i spray in like some sea salt spray um it's really bad to rub your hair with a towel fun fact it's also really yeah. bad to sleep on a cotton pillowcase really it's it causes like mechanical damage to your hair oh. so i got a silk pillowcase and it seems to be working. I need a haircut. I think that's what's stopping yeah. it right now is I really need to go get a haircut. No, it, lo- it looks good. It doesn't look so great the second day. The first day, it looks really baller. I'm sure. I'm still figuring out how to sleep on it. This week, I tried out what's called a pineapple, which is just a very loose bun on the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. top of your head. It was weird. I didn't sleep great, I think, because I, my hair wasn't like on my face like normal, and it felt yeah. weird, but... It looked great the next day. But that's a deal breaker for me. I need a good second or sometimes in dire cases, third day hair. Like it's got to look good those three days. It looked, it looked fine this morning. I didn't sleep with a pineapple last night. It's, it's a constant state of experimentation. Yeah. But I'm happy with it. My hair is super shiny. Yeah. Like it is the healthiest it's probably ever been. No, that's since awesome. Since I started dyeing it. Yeah. Cause I remember when you like, when you first dyed it and yeah, it didn't look great. No, it looks fine. This no, it looks it looks fine. But I know, like when you put that like hard bleach in, because we both have really dark hair. Yeah, it did not. When you like, put that hard bleach in it, your hair is like, what the fuck did you just do to me? Yeah, that's why I cut it all off. Yeah. Last year, last year. Yeah. So my hair is now non-dyed, no sulfates, no alcohols. I haven't used Lucky heat you. on it in two and a half months. It's very happy. Needs to be cut, but. It's also falling out because when your hair is wavy and curly, yeah. it's more, my hair is more curly now. You like don't lose hair during the day. And so when you touch it, it all falls out. Mm-hmm. It's really fun. No. Um, there's your nice hair tutorial. Hair tip. 
We should probably put a disclaimer at the beginning of this. <laughs> Just skip to the the guitar riff but yeah. <laughs> sorry we just bored half of our audience <laughs> anyway i'm bethan and i'm leah and this is she will rock you <laughs> so this is not a podcast about hair that would uh, be actually really hard to do because you need that visuals be, yeah that would be really hard. Follow a lot of great hair YouTubers now. Um, but this week, I wanted to pay a tribute to someone who got lost in the shuffle that is the shit show that is 2020. Mm. Um, was it last month? Is it May? I, like I said, I don't know what month it is anymore. I believe it was May. Yes. This past May, uh, tragically, sadly, little Richard passed away. And because the world is on fire i feel like five people posted that about his death that i knew and then the next day we forgot about it no that's very true um and i have a very distinct memory of little richard when i was much younger i'm not going to start with it like i normally would because it it plays into this timeline um but i started i went back and watched that specific video and i was like that's who i'm doing for the next episode and little did i know exactly how important little richard is to the landscape of modern music of rock and roll uh he's the architect of rock and roll wow uh don't let anyone else i literally wrote my notes don't let some other podcast tell you it was invented by white guys it was invented by little richard listen we have discovered on this pot we made the discovery (laughs) tm that literally rock and roll started in blues and rock like it started with black people white people did not start shit no we did not sit down uh it was this guy and sister rosetta tharp pretty much who i would love to cover in a future episode we'll talk about her a little bit today um so i wanted to start this episode with a quote from the speech that was given when he was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame And it says, he claims to be the architect of rock and roll and history would seem to bear out Little Richard's boast. More than any other performer, save perhaps Elvis Presley, Little Richard blew the lid off the 50s, laying the foundation for rock and roll with his explosive music and charismatic persona. On record, he made spine-tingling rock and roll. His frantically charged piano playing and raspy shouted vocals on classics such as Tutti Frutti, Long Tall Sally, and Good Golly Miss Molly define the dynamic sound of rock and roll. Um, so keep, keep that in mind as I tell this story, like he's the first, Yeah, he didn't grow up listening to Elvis. Like, no, no he invented this genre. We will see Elvis later. I don't want to say stole from him, stole from him. He, mm. you'll see. Yeah. Okay. So he was, little Richard was born Richard Wayne Penniman in Macon, Georgia, on December 5th, 1932, and was the third of 12 children. Holy shit. Yeah. That's a lot of kids. Um, so you can imagine that his life was great growing up as a black man in Georgia in the 1930s. His father was a church deacon and a brick mason, but he had a side hustle. And his side hustle was selling bootlegged moonshine. Hell yeah. And owning a nightclub called the Tip, Tip In Inn, which Tip is a stupid Inn. name. I love it. He was also an incredibly, incredibly abusive man. Oh, never mind. He uh, 
little Richard talked about him a lot in interviews in his life. Uh, I watched several of them in, in the process of researching and like he said that he would tie him to the bed naked and whip him until he bled. Holy shit. So he would tell him that he was an embarrassment to the family. Oh that he my never God. wished he would have been born. Um, and he thinks that part of this hatred was because he was little Richard was born slightly deformed. One of his legs is slightly shorter than the other. And one of his arms is slightly shorter than the other. Okay. So he's always been like the imperfect child of the family. Um, so that's cool. His fun fact, his name was supposed to have been Ricardo, but they printed it wrong on his birth certificate and Richard just stuck. Oh, uh, when he was younger, he started singing in church choir and I wrote in parentheses, didn't we all? Mm-hmm. Uh, because his family was super, super, super religious. They like church hopped a lot, uh, but they joined various AME Baptist and Pentecostal churches with several of his siblings and family members, aunt and uncles eventually becoming ministers and pastors. But he enjoyed the Pentecostal churches the most because of their charismatic worship, live music. Like it was just a happen in place. Mm-hmm. And he felt most at home there. They, the neighborhood he grew up in was super poor. Like they didn't have much, but he never really felt like it was a bad place to live because everyone was so happy. They sang gospel songs all the time to like keep their spirits up. And mm-hmm. he was like, everyone seemed pretty, you know, pretty happy. He was, he's always been into music, both church music and secular music. Um, he especially looked up to gospel performers, brother Joe May, sister Rosetta Tharp, who mm-hmm. was one of the very first electric guitarists. That's, oh, oh, that's sister yeah, Rosetta yeah, yeah. Tharp. I know her picture. Like I know, yes. I can see the picture now. Yes. Uh, Malia Jackson and Marion Williams, brother Joe May was a singing evangelist who was known as the Thunderbolt of the Middle West because of his like super diverse vocal range and how like strong he could sing. Right. And he actually inspired Richard's dream of becoming a preacher. Hmm. But he ended up being a musician. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, His first, so he's known for playing the piano, but the first instrument he ever learned was the alto saxophone when he joined his school's marching band <laughs> in fifth grade. Didn't we all? Didn't we all pick up a clarinet? No. Oh. I did not join band. What? Yeah, I was never in band. You would have been a great clarinetist. Well. I don't know. You give a clarinet energy. I wanted to play flute. I was going to say flute next. We weren't allowed to pick two electives in sixth grade and I chose chorus over band. Oh. Uh, okay. Uh, sometimes I regretted that, but hearing about the band teachers at my school i also did not yeah so while he was in high school he got a part-time job as does every high schooler especially mm-hmm. when you have 11 other siblings at the macon city auditorium which was great for him because lots of acts came there both gospel and secular so his his role was selling coke coca-cola okay to the crowd <laughs> not cocaine selling coca-cola to the crowds um he got to see people perform such as uh like all of his idols came there including sister rosetta tharp mm-hmm. which he just idolized and he got to see them and get paid so that's a pretty sweet deal yeah in october so she came in october of 1947 when he was 15 sorry 14 and he was just like goofing around backstage on the piano before her set and she heard him she was like hey do you want to 
open up for me? <gasps> and he said, yes, obviously, because why would you not want to open up for right. your hero? And she paid him. And then that's where his dream of being a professional performer started. Like he had never really seriously considered it. He thought he was going to be a preacher. Right. And, but when, when your idol says, open up for me. Yeah. You don't say no. You got to say that. Um, so before he entered his 10th grade year, he ended up leaving his family home. We'll talk about why later. Uh, this is normally I try to intersperse their personal information to the, the timeline in which it happens. Yeah. We're going to save little Richard's personal life for after his career. And you'll see why. Uh, so he gets, he gets kicked out of his house before 10th grade, but he ends up joining like this, like traveling show that's called the Hudson's medicine show mm-hmm. and just performing with them for a while. This was where he learned his first secular R and B song because his family wouldn't allow him to listen to R and B because it was quote devil's music. No, oh, yeah, of course says every conservative child raised in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, also during this time he started performing in drag Ooh, under the name princess Levon. Ooh, I don't have any other context for that. That That's was a all good I could find name. out. So he, he just does that for a while until he would have finished high school. Then he he comes back and joins his first band in 1950. So you can bet this band name is going to be fantastic. I can't wait. Buster Brown's Orchestra. Well, that's no electric sheep, but nope. all right. We'll take it. And that's where he gets his name, Little Richard. And it had been his nickname growing up. And then Buster Brown, which I guess was either actually this guy's name or his stage name. He just started calling him that for real. And they start playing on the minstrel minstrel show circuit, mm-hmm. um, which he performed in and out of drag. So that's cool. But as we know, the minstrel circuit was, was not, you know, the best place to be performing. It was reserved specifically for, oh, I actually explained this in the next bullet. Good job. Pass me. So I said, let's stop here and unpack what a minstrel show circuit is because it gets thrown out there a lot, and I'm not sure that everyone knows what it is. Yeah, I have, like, one definition of it in yes. my head. This is the exact definition off of the internet. Uh, the minstrel show was a f- an American form of entertainment developed in the early 19th century. Each show consisted of comic skits, variety acts, dancing, and music performances that depicted spe- specifically people of African descent. The shows were performed by mostly white people in makeup or blackface, and the purpose of playing the role of a black person. There were also some African-American performers and black-only minstrels that performed and toured, but they, like, all, no matter what, if it was black people or white people doing it, they always portrayed black people as dim-witted, lazy, Mm -hmm. buffoon-ish, superstitious, happy-go-lucky, sex-crazed. They were, like, they were a stereotype. They were a walking, talking stereotype. So you can imagine this is not what he wants to do for the rest of his life. Sure. So while he's doing that, he also somehow gets jobs playing at clubs in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. like on his off nights in the minstrel show. And he's been hanging out with these, these people called, and their names are Roy Brown and Billy Wright. And they are very flashy showman people, more in like the jazz circuit, but they've got like this energy that he really likes and steals from, uh, in his own music. And Billy Wright actually puts him in puts him in contact with a guy who has the best name I've ever seen, Zenus Sears, who is a local DJ who helps him record eight tracks. So those recordings lead to a contract with RCA, uh, 
and he records eight total sides, so four forty-fives, thirty-threes, the little guys, including the blues ballad "Every Hour," which got some local radio play in Georgia and kind of became his first big hit. So after shortly after he does that, he can get out of the minstrel circuit. Thank goodness, because he's hired to front for a guy named Perry Welch and his orchestra. That is in all caps. Perry Welch and his orchestra playing at clubs and army bases for a hundred dollars a week. Well, it's better making decent money. But so he he signed to a record label, but it's 1950s Georgia, right. and he's a black man. So they are like, we don't really want to promote your music because it's not going to sell. Uh. So he has a really hard time getting them to promote him, despite the fact that he kind of gets like this cult following because his live shows are insane. Like yeah. he's just, he was, he grew up a gospel singer. So like he's got this like. Yeah, he's got a persona. Over the top energy. He's used to getting crowds to join him singing gospel. Um Around this time, when he was 19, his father was murdered. Uh, his father's name was Bud, and he was shot. Say I'm surprised. He was, he was shot dead outside a local bar by his best, by R- little Richard's best friend, Frank. Ooh. But Some there drama. is no information on the internet why he did it. Hmm. It just says, little Richard was quoted in an interview saying, he was out of jail in a week, and we never found out what really happened. Come to your own conclusions on it. I want to know what really happened. Um. So he's like dealing with that. His father's murdered. And he very, very quickly goes through three record labels, like within the span of three years. Oh. They just don't do shit to promote him. So he eventually lands at Specialty Records in February 1955, who considered signing him as their Ray Charles but the main guy who's in charge of signing people liked Fats Domino better because uh-huh. heaven forbid you have more than one black man yeah. on your roster. I just love how they have that worded. They, we need to find our Ray Charles. Yep. Like that just shows you their time and their thinking. So fuck those guys. Yep. Uh, so luckily they did one thing. Okay. I guess they sent, they were like, we can't sign you. We're going to send you to a guy who knows the music industry. So they sent him to a guy whose name is Robert bumps Blackwell. <laughs> Uh, who owns a recording studio in New Orleans called Cosimo Matassa's J&M Studios. There are some good names in this episode. I don't understand. I put that in there just so I'd have to struggle through it. Where he actually recorded some new tracks with uh, Fats Domino's session musicians. So something came out good came out of that. So they're just kind of like hanging out in New Orleans goofing off in the studio doing Uh as you do it sounded like they didn't really have a lot of prepared material which seems like a waste of money and time right recording studios were different in the 50s i get that but so they record for a month and they got nothing interesting like nothing worth sharing so one night bumps bumps (laughs) and richard went to relax at a club called the do drop in nightclub and according to bumps while they're at this nightclub Richard just gets up on stage and just starts playing with a band, like the house band, and launched into a risque dirty blues thing that he pretty much wrote on the spot that he called Tutti Fruity. Um, Bumps 
Blackwell was like, hell yeah, that's a hit. Probably didn't say that, but I'm paraphrasing here. And the lyrics were too sexual, so they hired a another songwriter to replace his lyrics with less controversial words. Wait, 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 wait. Tutti Frutti is risque? The original one. I don't know what the original lyrics are. I thought are. the lyrics were just Tutti Frutti or Rudy. No, that's not the right song. Wait, which one is this? This is a wop bop a loo bop a wop bam boom. Oh, uh, okay. I was about, uh, that's where my confusion was coming in. I was like, excuse me. No, so. Excuse me. I don't know what the lyrics were, but these are the lyrics now. I just pulled an ex- excerpt because, I mean, it's 2020. Our songs are a fuck ton worse yeah but the lyrics in question are i got a girl named sue she knows just what to do she rocks the east she rocks the west but she's the girl that i love best yeah okay <laughs> that's cute though yeah apparently it was too sexual for 1955 yeah. um so it's worth noting that around this time as he's he's recording these songs uh that richard was a teetotaler or straight edge if you will he would not drink alcohol did not touch drugs, wouldn't even smoke a cigarette. Um, I imagine that came from his super religious, super conservative upbringing yeah. where he wasn't allowed to do these things. But buckle up, because it's not going to last forever. <laughs> the 70s are coming. Um, so he releases Tutti Fruity, which becomes an instant hit. It reaches number two on Billboard's Rhythm and Blues bestsellers and even like, makes it to the UK on the pop charts, which mm-hmm. is... I don't un- I don't understand how genres work because no. those are two very different genres. But okay, his next single, "Long Tall Sally," in 1956, is also a number one hit on the R&B charts. Not like across the whole country. So then he decides, okay, I should probably build my own backup band, which I'm only mentioning because he named them the Upsetters. Oof, I don't like it, but whatever. That's right. Uh, and so he, as he becomes more popular, more famous, he starts doing more shows. Yeah. And this is an era where normally you had the black show, you had the white show, mm-hmm. but he was one of the first people that have performed integrated audiences. Good for him. Um, because they kind of, the, I don't know if it was the record label who did this or if it was the artist who did this. But they would get, they would go on what's called package tours. So they would package Little Richard with Fats Domino and Chuck Berry to enable audiences of both races to enter the building at the same time. They would still be segregated. Uh, Blacks would be on the balcony and whites would be on the main floor. But they could Mm -hmm. at least be in the building at the same time, seeing the same show. Which I, meh. It's progress, I guess. But like. I know. Whatever. But. So that was cool. He, he, the three of them were like trailblazers in integrated audiences. However, because it's the 1950s South, you know, your local white supremacist group decides we don't like this, these people here. Yeah. And the group is called the North Alabama White Citizens Council. (sighs) And they like to warn that rock and roll would bring the races together. Oh, for fuck's sake. Heaven forbid. Um, so little Richard like single-handedly helped to shatter the myth that black performers could not successfully perform at white only venues, especially in the South. So good for him. And his shows were, I imagine I've 
I was not there. It was the 50s, so not a whole lot of, like, 50s footage of Little Richard yeah. exists. But he, like, you think Elton John is hype when he's playing piano? He has nothing on Little Richard. Yeah. Little Richard would, like, put his feet up on the piano while he's playing. He would climb on top of his piano and, like, play upside down oh, so that he's it. backwards. Uh, he would run on off the stage and just start throwing shit out in the audience. Like, Love it. He also, I mean, he was, he dressed in drag for a long time. So he started wearing capes and suits that were like covered in gems and sequins and like yes. just dressed. He had this, like this All crazy, I almost want to call it like a bouffant mullet. That was his hairstyle. Uh-huh. Um, he had a lot of hair, but he said that he had to be flamboyant on stage so that no one would think that he was after the white girls, which is really sad. Oh, oh yeah that that kind of hurts yeah but more on that later uh but that didn't really work even if that was his plan because at a show in baltimore in june 1956 women just started throwing their underwear on stage at him (laughs) which is supposedly the first time that it happened to any artist so really he was the first he's the first good for him what a milestone uh not sure that's something you want to be first in but okay. 1950s fangirls, they were something else. They were, they were not okay. No, no. And you know what? <laughs> the media hyped it on purpose. Yeah, they did. To get, cause a crying white girl brings money. Yes, it do. I'm sorry, but it has to be said. Crying white girls can also get out of anything. Mm-hmm. That too. Um, that same show... That show, I don't know what these kids were on, but they had to stop the show several times with all the performers because people would just jump off the balcony and then run to the stage and try to touch him. Like, <laughs> What is he, Jesus? <laughs> yes, rock and roll Jesus. Um, so 1950s people, please calm down. Uh, let me scroll. He would go on to produce seven singles in the U.S. alone in just 1956, with five of them also charting in the U.K. They include Slippin' and Sliding, Rip It Up, Ready Teddy, The Girl Can't Help It, and Lucille. Uh, So this is where it gets kind of like, (laughs) fuck white people. Yeah. So he released Tutti Frutti, which he did great on his own. Like, it charted... But because it's the 1950s, it was protocol for safer white artists to record the same song. And then that way the song could chart. So Pat Boone re-recorded Tutti Frutti Uh and went to the top 20 of the overall chart. Stupid. Stupid. Which did better than Little Richard. I hate it. Who wrote the damn song. I hate it so much. So that's cool. Um, rock and roll peers Elvis Presley and Bill Haley also would re-record some of his songs that same year mm-hmm. which sucks but now we know that's a terrible idea mm-hmm. uh, he made friends with a, a DJ named Alan Freed who like would rotate his songs over the white people versions yeah. so good for alan and also eventually like gave him so much exposure and made the right connections that he got put into several rock and roll movies such as don't knock the rock and mr rock and roll i don't know what exactly those movies are but right. getting a a film role as a black man was a big deal that year he was just on fire and or the next year so he did a bunch in 1956 1958 he 
that's not the year that comes after 56, 57, he had several more success songs, including Jenny Jenny and Keep a Knockin'. He has great song titles. (laughs) So he ends up leaving Specialty Records, who did eventually sign him after Bumps produced his record. Um, And he had nine top 40 singles and 17 top 40 R&B singles. He still hasn't released a full album yet. Right. Like, these are all just random singles because music was released differently in the 50s. He does release a, fir- a first album in, I don't know what year, I'm going to say 1957. And it does okay. Mm-hmm. It's a debut album. It's fine. Nothing special. In 1958, he released his second album with Specialty, and it did not chart Aww. at all. So they he needed to make money. So they sent him on a tour, a pack, another package tour uh-huh. in Australia with a guy named Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran. But in the middle of this tour, he just announces he's retiring because he's going to go be a minister. So he finally did it. Finally did it. And the the way that he came to this conclusion is kind of kind of creepy. He wrote an autobiography, which I now really want to read after doing this research. But in his autobiography, on his flight from Melbourne to Sydney, he, like, had a vision. And he saw that the plane's engines were red hot and felt angels were holding it up. So he he got to thinking, like, is this my calling for life? And while he's performing in Sydney, he had a vision of a bright red fireball flying across the sky and was, like, super shaken, which he thought was a vision, but actually turned up, turned out to be Sputnik one crashing to earth. <gasps> oh, so that's he, like, weird. He witnessed the satellite crashing. It was like, that's a vision from God. I oh have to be a minister. Gosh. But like, even though he like a couple days later, they're like, Richard, like that wasn't a vision that actually happened. He's like, Nope, it was a vision. It's my calling. I have to quit. Well, um, teach his own. He left in the middle of the tour, came back to the United States 10 days earlier than he was supposed to. And, uh, when he got back to the United States, he read a news article, that his original flight from Australia, like when he would have came 10 days later, crashed in the Pacific ocean. Oh, jeez! This is some buddy Holly uh, premonition shit. So that's cool. You know what? If that saved him. Good. Yeah. Yo, oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Cause the best part, I don't of know how I feel about it, but you know what? If it saved him, I'll take it. The best part of his career is yet to come. Uh, so he took that as a sign to listen to God and go be a minister. So he did one final farewell performance at the Apollo Theater and one final recording session with specialty. And then he enrolled at Oakwood Ho- College in Huntsville, Alabama. I said that really, really country. Huntsville, Alabama to study theology. However, he, he told the public that he was having a spiritual rebirth, but he later after all this shakes out, admitted that his reasons for leaving were actually for money. Mm-hmm. Um, specialty, as you can imagine, did not treat him great. Yeah. And they ended up, he earned millions from the label, which was cool, but they took way more than their fair share. Like He learned later that they secretly cut his percentage of royalties mid-contract. So like he was making less money than he was supposed to. Stupid. So that's cool. So he like felt betrayed yeah, from his record label. Rightly so. And like he was owed a bunch of money. 
And so he just was like, I'm going to go be a pastor for a while. In 1958, he reformed the Little Richard Evangelistic Team, which traveled across the country to preach. I'm assuming they sing as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know. A month after his conversion, he met Ernestine Harvin and married her that year. Okay. So that's his wife. So then he did exactly what you'd expect from him and dabbled in gospel music for a while. But, but... In 1962, he is doing the gospel thing. He's still touring as a gospel singer. Right. He decides to go to Europe because he's always sold better in Europe than they sell here. It's the age old thing of people sell better in the countries they're not from. I don't understand. Yeah. But for some reason on this tour, he decided it would be a good idea to do all gospel music, even though the records that were selling in Europe were his old records, like his rock and roll records. Right. So he got up there and did some gospel music and he got booed no, off the stage. Oh no. So he quickly changed it the next night to be a full rock and roll set. Yeah. Um and he's still like not sold on coming back to rock and roll full time. He's just like, I'm gonna do it for this tour. It'll be good. Go back to my gospel music when I get back. But in the fall of nineteen sixty three, he gets a call that they need him to come rescue a tour that's not doing great. This tour was the Everly Brothers, Bo Diddley, and the Rolling Stones. Oh, wow. So Richard was like, yeah, I'll come save you guys. And he came and saved the tour from flopping single-handedly. Wow. In 1964, he released his comeback album because he decides he's going to pursue. I said that wrong. He's going to pursue rock and roll full-time again. Ministry life is done yeah uh he names it little richard is back appropriate yeah simple um he very quickly slides off of his minister habits and starts drinking heavy amounts of alcohol smoking cigarettes and smoking marijuana oh so you can imagine what's coming yeah um also around this time this is this early 60s now so the Beatles are coming into town. Mm-hmm. Rolling Stones are coming into town. Right. Motown's getting started up. Stax Record is getting started up. James Brown is... We're about to hit a nice nice section of music here. Uh, so He starts recording new stuff and no one promotes it because there's all this other new stuff to promote. Right. Little Richard is old news. In 1964, the Upsetters get a new band member. Guess who it is? It's 1964. 1964. You know who he is. You just may not know he was in Little Richard's band. I'm not. Who? Ellen John? Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix. Okay. I feel like someone in my brain is triggering that I've heard that before. Jimi Hendrix joins Richard Upsetter's ba- Richard's Upsetter's band as a full time member. That's pretty cool. The two do not get along. Yeah, I can see why. Um, They do get some like good songs obviously Hendrix is an amazing guitar player yeah um they they recorded a ballad called I don't know what you've got but it's got me which charted at number 12 but Hendrix and Richard fought a lot uh justified because Hendrix is late all the fucking time (laughs) (laughs) they have very different opinions on what they should be wearing as a band Richard wants his capes and his like glitz and glamour Hendrix is like nah we need 
whatever Hendrix was into at the yeah. time. Um, and then Hendrix would constantly try to upstage him. Being the lead guitarist, you do get your moments, but yeah, you can't you, upstage a Little Richard. You are that's, in Little Richard's that's band. That's not correct. Um, and he also complained all the time that Little Richard wasn't paying him paying him enough. So in 1965, Richard's brother, who was acting manager at the time, just fired Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, oh, I can understand. He did okay for himself. He'll though. be fine. Um. So around this time, he Richard still having a hard time. Like this has been his struggle his whole life. His record label is just doing a shit job promoting him. Right. Especially in the U.S., which there's a lot happening in the U.S. So, yeah, I mean, it's not valid, but I can see why a record label would be like, but we got the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, but he can book these. He can sell out huge venues in Europe. No right. problem. But in the U.S., he's playing the Chitlin circuit. Right. Which we heard about in some other episode. Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. I, was like, I couldn't remember what it was the other night. I was writing this. Um, also, he's still rocking the same flamboyant look that he started in the 50s, which worked in the 50s, but isn't working so great in 1964 when we're like protesting Vietnam and right. we're not we're not into the glitz and glitter anymore. We're, we're grungy now. Also, conservative black record buyers hated it. They're like, this is too flashy, too much for me. Also, these conservative black record buyers are being influenced by their ministers who now hate little Richard because he backslid from the ministry. Oh yeah. That's going to be a problem. Cool. 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 Um, he also made things worse on himself when he was performing to the integrated audiences. So at the same time, he's still insisting that he's going to perform in front of integrated audiences, which is cool, but also the black liberation movement is happening this time. Okay. So we've got the Watts riots, Black Panthers are being formed. Okay. Um, and then Little Richard's off doing his own thing, which caused many black DJs to not play him because they were like, you're disrupting this movement. You're yeah. detracting from it. Like, it's not cool. So he gets a new acting manager. His name's Larry Williams. And he pushes Little Richard into the image that we actually now, I think, is his image. Not now, because he is past but like that's his iconic image yeah he books him some shows in vegas and some casinos pushes him to dress even more flamboyantly adopt this more androgynous look right inspired by Jimi hendrix oh that's funny uh and he starts getting booked at some rock festivals and starts stealing the show from the headliners like he's booked as like a low bill guy because he's kind of like old news at this point right he plays at the atlantic city pop fest pop festival and steals a show from Janis Joplin. Oh. And then... That's my girl. Later in the same year, he plays Toronto Pop Festival, where John Lennon is headlining and steals the show from John Lennon as well. This is interesting. So he's making not not some enemies, but like... But it's kind of like a respect your elder kind of situation. Like... It, he it, was here first. He was here first. He's the architect of rock and roll. If he wants to steal the fucking show, you let him you steal the fucking show. Let him steal it. Um... So because he does those two things, he ends up getting on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and then it's all over. He's like skyrocketing to being a major celebrity again. He's a household name. He's everywhere. He's touring. He's da-da-da-da. Yeah. All you really need to know from like the 1965 to 72 is he was hella popular. Right. But then the 70s happens. So you know what happens? He gets addicted to cocaine. No! By 1972, he was super addicted to cocaine he says in his 
autobiography they should have called me little cocaine i was sniffing so much of that stuff oh the poor guy he was addicted to he so he also developed addictions to both heroin and pcp which is angel dust yeah which none of those are good to be addicted to much less all of them yeah um his drug and alcohol use just began affecting his career his personal life his life fell apart he says he lost his reasoning he didn't know is he still married Yes, at this point, he's still married. He stays married to her the whole time. Really? Um, Wow. He admitted that his addictions were costing him as much as $1,000 a day. Oh, God. But in 1977, so for like two years, he's hardcore addicted. But in 1977, he has a wake-up call. So his brother, Tony, dies of a heart attack. Uh Uh-huh. His nephew dies that he loved like a son in an accidental shooting. And two of his best friends are murdered. So he wow. says, I am never touching drugs again. I'm going back to ministry. I'm not, I'm done with rock and roll. This yeah. lifestyle is terrible. We're going back to the ministry. So he just kind of does that for like another 10 years. Um, so we'll fast forward another 10 years to 1984. He decides that he's going to file a $112 million lawsuit against specialty records for all that money they stole from him well, back in the rightly 50s. Well, so, yeah. Um, I don't know how much it was settled for. He was... Oh, I mean, he's, he filed for 112 million, so he got some portion of that. Ended right. up being settled out of court in 1986. So those records are sealed, so no one really knows. But he got some money. Hopefully, he got a lot of money. Um, according to some sources, Michael Jackson supposedly helped him get that monetary compensation because well, he nice. like he had some kind of leverage on the record label. So at the time, Mac- Michael Jackson owned some songs. That were written by the Beatles and Little Richard. So he like pulled some strings. Yeah. Um, is This time in the 80s, he decides that he can be an evangelist and be a rock and roll musician. Okay. He says that like rock and roll is a platform that can be used for good or evil. It's up to him to decide how to use it. So he gets a role in a film called Down and Out in Beverly Hills where he and Billy Preston wrote a faith-based rock and roll song called Great Gosh Almighty. Oh my gosh. Which I hate. I hate that title. But the song did really, really well, and I don't have any concrete proof for this, but I'm going to bet that it was the first, like, it started a movement. We know what happened in Christian music around this time in 1990. What year is it? 1990? 1989-ish. So we got, exactly. we got DC Talk... Yeah. Coming in. We got... This well, we is, have some really crappy music in the 80s. But you have some okay ones. This is but when... But yeah, we're, we're heading that direction. This is when Christian music starts to get good. Yeah. This is in quotes. 90 CCM, I will say, had some bangers. Yeah. There were some bangers that came out of that. Not all, but some. But he was one of the first people to be like, you don't have to have evil rock or great Christian music. We can have great christian rock but you know what i kind of appreciate that because if you look at ccm today it was like 70s not not the best music 80s still not that good and then 90s is like whoa you guys are actually doing good these are good bops we can make a music 2000s and the plane's crashing the plane's crashing plane's crashing 2010 now play the same thing just gave up yeah um so that song does really well it sparks other faith-based rock songs but then in 1994 
Richard is hired to sing the theme song for the award-winning PBS Kids and TLC animated television series, The Magic School Bus. Really? That's Little Richard? He sings the fucking Magic School Bus song! Are you serious? My brain short-circuited the other night, because, like, I think I knew Wait, that... Wait, he wrote it, unsung it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I don't know if he wrote it. It says he sang it, but... Now that's a bop. Like, I literally read that, and I think I knew that deep down in my... 1995 1996 brain but like but yeah i read it and i just i went and immediately googled the magic school bus theme and i was like holy shit he sings the magic school bus theme but that's not how i first learned a little richard i have a very distinct memory of watching we had i had a very large collection of sing-along videos when i was little yeah some of them were sesame street some of them were the disney sing-along some of them were muppet sing-alongs yeah and there's a Sesame Street one where he sings a version of Rubber Ducky. He has a piano. Oh, I remember that in one. In a bathtub. And that is my first memory of Little Richard. Yeah, that's a good one. And so that's the same year. 1994, he also was in Sesame Street. I was only one, but I, I appreciated it later in my childhood. Yeah. So in 2000, they made a dramatized biography film called Little Richard Creative. Which mm-hmm. focused on, you know, what every biographical movie is, his rise to success, his early years, his childhood, uh, his religious conversion, and return to secular music. But I found this interview from mm-hmm. 2000 when this movie first came out on the now defunct Osmond show with Donnie and Marie. Yeah. I feel like forgot that was a thing, first off. Second off, we were not good at fashion in 2000. We it's- thought we were, though. Marie's hair is bad. It's like that middle part, very yeah, harsh, bob. but it's very like poof, right? Yeah, it's like the I can't visually just like describe it, but it goes like this. Yeah. It's just not a good look. But anyway, so they interviewed him because that was a, one of the many daytime talk shows at the time. And it's a really great interview, and there were two things he said in it about the movie. One is that they started making it as an unauthorized film, and when okay. he found out, he quote screamed like a white woman. Uh, cause he was like, they are not about to make a movie about my life without my input. Uh, so they made him, they made, That's them, really funny. <laughs> they made them, they made him stop. Um, but he wanted to make an authorized version. He wanted to be good cause it's yeah. his life story. Yeah, it's fair. So Prince and Gene Simmons gave him $30 million to make this movie. Holy shit. He said that and I literally paused the video and I was like. Prince and Gene Simmons are just giving you money? That's that's a team up right there. Never in my life would I think Prince, Gene Simmons, and Little Richard go together. But okay. I could I could see it though. I, I yeah. could see both being influenced by him. It happened. And he, he said he wanted to do it while he was still alive and still young ish. Yeah. Because he didn't want someone to he wanted input in how it be told. Sure. And he can obviously give insight because he was there. Um the whole movie is on YouTube. I don't know if it's supposed to be there, but it is there. I didn't have time to watch it before we recorded, but that is on my weekend plan to go watch it because I saw clips of it and it looks great. Uh, so that's 2000 from 2000, 2010. He tours like a normal tour schedule. He's obviously getting older, much older. Yeah. And probably not jumping on pianos right now. He was, but sciatic nerve pain and his left leg started acting up and then he gets a hip replacement and then he has to start canceling performances and starts having other health problems. Um, he he does like sporadic shows up until 2012. His body was failing 
him, mm-hmm. but his voice was still still full of fire, still a master showman. Right. His voice was still loaded with the, the power, but he's he got really old. Yeah. At the age of 79, he performed a full 90-minute show in Pensacola, Florida in 2012, um, and then headlined the New Orleans... I don't know. That, so he... In 2012, he performed a full 90-minute show in, in Pensacola, Florida. He was 79. So that's crazy. Props to him. In September 2013, they did an interview with him. He had announced that he had been he was going to retire soon. I mean, he's he's 80 years old. Yeah. And he said, "I'm done in a sense because I don't feel like doing anything right now." I get it. <laughs> 80, you know, I ain't doing a damn thing. Mood. He said, "I think my legacy should be that when I started in the show business, there's no such thing as rock and roll." When I started with Tutti Fruity, that's when rock really started rocking. Yeah. So he does a couple more shows and he did his last concert in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 2014. So now let's talk about his personal life. Because I think it's important that you understand his career trajectory before I plug in these details. Right. So I don't really have a good way, good place to put this fact. So I'm just going to stick it right here. He was a vegetarian for over 50 years of his life. Wow. Like, and that was in 2000 in this interview with Donnie Marie. So... It was probably 70 years. Wow, that's crazy. By the time he died, which is props to him. Yeah. Because when he started, vegetarianism was like not a thing. Yeah, not really. No. Um, So that's good. He believed like he was obviously very religious and very spiritual. He believed that eating healthy and eating well led to a good life. Yeah. Good for him. He ain't wrong. Um, But he has some interesting things about him. And I, I did vet these facts before. I'm, I'm not like trying to slander the man, but these are very public facts he's talked about. So, okay. Um, in 1956, he became involved with a 16 year old. He was 24. Her name is Audrey Robinson. They started to become close, but Audrey didn't like rock and roll music. So like, why are you hanging out with little Richard? But right. whatever. Uh, and he wrote in his biography that he would invite other men to have sex with her while he watched. Including Buddy Holly. So that's Yikes. cool. He was apparently very into to that. Wasn't there another artist that was into that? Not that, that we've covered. I don't remember. Wasn't it? It wasn't Bowie. Um, so that's cool. Uh. Buddy Holly. We, we don't know if Buddy Holly was ever invited because Buddy Holly was dead by the time this autobiography came out. So he couldn't speak for himself. Right. Um, he proposed to her very shortly before he converted to Christianity, but she refused. Uh, she later went on to become a stripper. So that's cool. Good for her. She got out of that situation. She's probably much happier. Mm -hmm. He met his wife, as I mentioned, at an evangelical rally. They got married hella fast. And she, according to her, she initially had a very happy marriage. They, everything was normal. Oh, sorry. They did end up getting divorced. I don't know how I forgot that. They got divorced in 1964. Okay. She says it was due to his celebrity status, which made life difficult for her. Sure. He's on the road all the time. He's super popular. But uh, he says it's because he was a terrible husband and because of his sexuality. We're going to talk about that. And I'm going to add this this disclaimer that I don't necessarily agree with everything that is going to be said. I'm reading my notes. This comes from him. You'll see why buckle up he said that as a child he only played with girls and was his father as we know was a complete piece of shit and constantly 
told him he was gay. He was a fairy. He was going to be homosexual. He already walked funny because his one of his legs are shorter than the other. And his dad would tell him that's because he's gay. And he was disappointed with the family. Um, he would play with his mother's makeup and dress up in her clothing, which his father would beat him for. Um, and he said that he was sexually involved with both sexes as a teenager. Right. And that's why he got kicked out of his house when he was 15. His dad, he, it's in the movie. He talked about it. He actually starts crying in this interview that with Donnie Marie, where he overheard his father saying that he wanted seven sons and Richard fucked it up. So he just said, fine, they don't want me here. I'm leaving. A poor kid. Um, so we know that he had a very effeminate style in, in the early years. Um, that came from Billy Wright, who I previously didn't mention, was one of the only openly gay musicians at the time. Okay. He actually taught little Richard how to use makeup, how to style his hair, how to do his whole look. So thank you, Billy Wright, mm-hmm. for, for your tutorial. As he got into makeup and his image, he would order his band to wear makeup. He said it was so... He told the band that it was for... You know, so they didn't think we were after the white girls, but really he just wanted to be colorful and be fun. And that was part of his image, which good for him. He actually used it to his advantage because he knew people would make fun of him anyway, just because just because his mannerisms. Right. So he said, I figure if being called a sissy would make me famous, let them say what they want to and just play it into it. Sure. Um, And this is the part where I, I don't necessarily agree. In 1982, he was on late night with David Letterman. And this was after he had gone to the ministry, come back, then gone to the ministry and gotten rid of his drug addiction. Right. And he says, they asked point blank, like, are you gay? And he said, God gave me the victory. I'm not gay now, but you know, I was gay all my life. Mm. I believe I was one of the first gay people to come out, but God let me know that he made Adam to be with Eve, not with Steve. So I gave my heart to Christ. But however, the same year, he goes on to say that, you know, homosexuality is unnatural and contagious, but then told another guy in another interview that he's pansexual. So yeah. he obviously had some very deeply rooted conflicts because yeah. of his upbringing, which is just really sad. And you can see just when he talks about it, like, like it hurts to watch him talk about yeah. it. Yeah, it's, heart- it's heartbreaking when you watch like in the evangelical sector, like certain parts where these people who are, you know, gay, it's just that real struggle to adapt to their ideologies mm-hmm. and their whole life. They're just struggling with it. And it's, it's, it's really rough to watch him talk about it. Yeah. And that, oh, that's that painful. Osmond interview. Um, but regardless, he was one of the, one of the, if not the first, with the exception of Billy Wright, who didn't achieve the level of fame that he did gay by whatever he wants to call himself. Yeah flamboyant performers um so props to him not only did he invent rock and roll he was out there he was yeah. wearing makeup before good for before him. jagger like way before jagger yeah. before anybody else so take that for what you will little richard very conflicted man had a lot of deep wounds in but his a good story psyche but a good story um, so he did sadly pass away this year on May 9th he was 87 wow um, he passed because he had a complication from his bone cancer he was sick for two months um leading into it and i mean he was he was he lived a very good life very long life that's all you can ask for and we should have talked about it more at the time because this man's legacy i like 
almost got emotional writing all these notes down for this the legacy section just because we would not have any of the modern music that we have if not for little richard i'm just going to read you the bullet points of what his contributions to music were and this is just the highlights there's more that were a lot more technical that i didn't go into so his raspy shouting style is pretty much what went on to influence all of rock and roll jagger's mm-hmm. got that screamy raspy Janis joplin everybody does like that was not a thing before little richard um he also took fusions of um new orleans r&b gospel music and boogie boogie woogie music as it says to create the rhythms that we know Uh in rock and roll his vocalizations and rhythmic music gave birth to soul and funk not just rock and roll because yeah. those also didn't exist at the time the ONC borrowed from these other genres like gospel and blues um are the reason that rock and roll music is loud mm-hmm. like music wasn't loud before little richard came on the scene like right. very quiet maybe a guitar like even jazz music if you listen to from like the 40s it's just all one volume there's they- no like drive there's nothing that's like wakes you up yeah there's no like emphatic sections where they get really loud like that was little richard he is the inventor of rock's piano rock piano's two-handed approach where you play your 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 bass pattern with your right hand and then your rhythm with your really right hand that's him wow he he brought that to rock and roll i mean most some classical pieces are written that way like it's not a new playing technique but but to bring it to rock jazz musicians didn't do that yeah um when he introduced tutti frutti that was a new rhythm pattern that had never been explored before dun, 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 yep. dun, dun, dun. so that became what is known as the standard rock beat which chuck berry later went on to to broaden the horizons but richard invented it yeah he was one of the first to generate croons, wails, and screams that were unprecedented in popular music. Like, I mean, he screams all the time in his songs. Yeah. Which you don't think is weird now. But back then, like, no one did that. Yeah. Um, his backing band, James Brown actually is the one who gives Little Richard the credit for the upsetters having been the first to put a funk beat or put funk in the rock beat. So, like, just the accents that they put into it. Like, right. No one... No one did that. And I keep saying that, but no one did that before this man, um, which helped transition from 1950s rock to 1960s funk. He is called the architect of rock and roll for these contributions, for many other contributions, for trailblazing the way that he did. Not only did he give us the foundation for rock and roll music as we know it he also was one of the first crossover black artists to reach audiences of all races right. i was actually surprised how many of his songs that i knew from my childhood from my grandparents playing them right which is if nothing against my grandparents but they just didn't listen to black music they listened to little richard which mm-hmm. to me speaks volumes on how influential this man was right so that is little richard go listen to him go watch his movie study up on him yeah i want to watch the movie now we owe all of our music to little richard not some white dudes yeah mic drop i'm losing my voice now because it's been a very long time since i've talked this long oh my god dude (laughs) i I went back to work right after my quarantine 
And I was like, why is my voice getting so raspy? And it's because I don't talk to anyone anymore. Nope. So that's cool. Um, I closed out the outro notes. We are, we don't have beers this time. We're still drinking the pineapple freezes. Yeah. Sorry. From last episode. Maybe we'll have beer next. Um, next recording sesh. We got some cool things coming down the pipeline. Yes. Too. I don't want to give them away yet. Sorry, but we've been a little MIA this summer. Our schedules have been kind of crazy. Also, you know, global pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I had to be quarantined for two weeks, and that was a trip. Don't go to Texas right now. Oh, my God. Don't start me on this. Um, Fun quarantine news while we're just rambling at the end of this episode. This episode should come out on August 21st, in which I will be actually seeing a concert. That's right. You will. So stay tuned for our next recording where we hear how drive-in concerts go. I'm, I'm very intrigued by this and how it's going to go. It's going to be a very different experience. But who knows? Yeah. Remember when you started this podcast? You're like, man, we're going to talk about the concerts we went to go see. And then 2020 Jokes happened. We talked a little bit. We got yeah. some shows in last year. We did. We got some good shows in last year, too. Do you have any concluding comments, Rody? Rody says, get this bitch out of my house. I want to go to sleep. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You also can leave us a review. We haven't had a review in a while. Kind of our bad because we've been off the air for a little bit. But whatever. We're back. Help us leave out. Leave us a review. Special thanks to Josh Tarpley for our intro riff. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at She Will Rock You Podcast. We're also on Twitter at She Will Rock, the letter U pod. You also can follow us on Instagram. Mine is at Beth Ann Tarpley. You will get content such as roadie and music with roadie looking at into your soul. It's very eye catching. And then you can find Leah at Leah Elizabeth Zache. You will get r- way more funner content on Leah's content on Leah's account, such as hair and Disney and strut stuff. I only show up when I want to. So, you know, I live on Instagram. Yeah. Come she's there 24 seven. Um, but anyway, you can follow either of us. Um, you also can send us an email. She will rock you podcast at gmail.com. Other than that, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. <laughs>